encourage is derived from courage. So you, we encourage people to get better. And that person has to have the courage to deal with our inadequacies. The mere human experience is that we wake up one day, we find ourselves on this planet Earth. And we go through life trying to figure out ways to deal with the adversities that come up. Those things take courage. So many of us have had a desire to have a big impact on the world in some way. I think so many of us feel like that's part of the meaning of why we're here. That's our purpose, right? It's to be an advocate for something, to go out and find something, you know, like activism to support a cause that you believe in. Whatever that thing is, building your own business, raising a family. What if I told you that underneath some of the people that have been the most successful at shaping the world was a single person's principles that you've probably never even heard of. That's what's so shocking to me. So we're going to talk today about one of the lesser known psychologists who is actually on par with Jung and Freud and how you can learn some of these principles and take it so that again, you can make the world more the way you want it to be. I hope you really enjoy. Welcome to the dream beyond. I'm your host, Nick Tarasio. I'm a CEO, musician, and overall seeker of truth, inspiration, and simply put, how to live the most fulfilling life possible. Growing up surrounded by extremely wealthy and successful people gave me unique and unfiltered perspectives of those who have seemingly made it. And on The Dream Beyond, we're letting you in on what it really takes to achieve your dreams, what happens when it turns out your destination isn't the promised land you were expecting, and how to process the lessons from your past while mapping a course to true fulfillment. Let's get started. Hey everybody, I'm here with someone who's a clinical psychotherapist and a graduate of Adler Graduate School in Minnetonka, Minnesota. His main clinical focus and passion surrounds trauma and mental illness with at-risk youth and their families, as well as the trauma surrounding U.S. veterans. Rightfully so, he's also a veteran of the U.S. Army. Please welcome Hallie Williams with us today. Thank you for being here, Hallie. Thank you for having me, Nick. All right, so I wanted to let everyone know how I even got to Adler. And again, we're going to be talking about a guy named, it's Alfred Adler, is that right? That's right. Excellent. So I was out in a bookstore, actually, I guess it was a coffee shop in Santa Monica, and I saw this book cover called The Courage to Be Disliked, which immediately spoke to me. I was like, I wish I had more courage to be disliked. I think I'd probably, I think I'd probably do more interesting things. And um, at the end of the day, I said, what is this all about? And I got into it and realized it was really a book a Japanese book about Alfred Adler, who was, was he Austrian or German? I don't even know what his background yes. was. Well, originally he, he was Austrian, but he also eventually moved to the U.S. Okay, so here's this, here's this crazy circuitous path of a, a random guy in a Santa Monica coffee shop that sees a book that's written by the Japanese about an Austrian therapist who made his way to the U.S. So it was just kind of this very circuitous thing, and I was like, who is this Alfred Adler guy? And very quickly started to understand that Adler was really on the level of, of Jung and, uh, and Freud. But for whatever reason, I, I'm curious why you think it is that he's not as big of a name as the other two. Why is that? Well, Adler and Freud had a falling out, uh, a theoretical falling out. And a number of Freud's followers at the time ended up subscribing to Adler's theories. So when they separated, Freud was from more of a upper class society, if you will. Um, he was more connected um, from a pretty powerful family. And what Adler did is he left that environment. He moved out kind of living among the people when he was developing his theory. 
And I think the, the main reason that we don't know more about Adler was initially, as I said, he did not come from a powerful background. So his theories weren't spread as often. And nowadays, we have a number of people that utilize Adler's theories and his teaching without giving him adequate credit. So, you know, the, Adler could be called the father of positive discipline or, and the father of positive psychology. But only in positive discipline, as he mentioned, positive psychology, you almost never hear about Adler. So it really takes a little bit of digging to find out that most of the theories that we have today um, are derived from Adlerian teachings, but um, Adler does not get much credit. That's the that's really the main reason. It would take a little digging, kind of like you did, to find out a little bit more about Adler. Interesting. I'm curious too. Are there other are there other expressions or concepts that are in common knowledge but are not attributed to Adler? Well, uh, you know, the inferiority feeling or inferiority complex is a term created by Adler. I don't think many, you know, very many people know that. Adler was also a big proponent of social interests, um, you know, that people don't really talk about much. Birth order, I'm sure you're probably familiar with that and many people be familiar with birth order, but these are concepts that were kind of derived and cultivated by Adler. So that's, you know, that, I would say those are the ones that's probably most common that people would be familiar with, everybody kind of knows of, inferiority complex and that inferiority feeling. So I would say those are those are probably the most common without being an academic that people would be kind of familiar with. Interesting. So it sounds like he's a little bit like the Nikola Tesla of psychology in that way where it, bigger, that's a players, very good way of putting it. bigger players from a successful family took a lot of credit, spread his teachings, or, or just, I mean, in the case of Tesla, he was pretty much buried by Edison as far as his work goes. So that sounds very That's a very, very good way of putting it. Very good way of putting it. Interesting. That's so exactly right. how did you find your way to Adler? That's a that's an interesting question. Um, I was working with, um, I had developed a program and I was working with uh, youth that had, I guess we would call them, for lack of another term, juvenile delinquents that had gotten in trouble with the law. And I was writing curriculums, kind of redirect some of these at-risk youth. So the court system had agreed that the youth that completed this program that I had would, would not be incarcerated because they'd already been picked up by the judge, by the police. They were in jail and they had been released to go to this program and if they successfully completed it, they would not be reincarcerated. So as I dug into my research, developing um, the curriculum and the things that I wanted to teach them about, and I was looking for positive things um, I went back a long ways. I mean, ever since the abolitionists and I, as I read about them and and um, things that I could present to the kids that I thought was interesting, it kind of led me to someone named Karen Horney and, you know, different people. And they kept referring to this guy, Alfred Adler. And I was like, who who is this dude? Because I, mean, I knew nothing about him. So as I started reading about Alfred Adler, his theories spoke to me. It gave words to something that I already believed, that I just didn't have the credibility to say and didn't really know how to say. And often that happens when a theory is put out in the world, certain people get attracted to it based on your personality. 
So as I dug into it and I found out about, um, you know, those feelings of inferiority, how some people will have this strong feeling of inferiority and they do a variety of things to make them feel better or to move into a different direction. Uh, and I found out like a lot of this stuff applied to the kids. The more I dug into it, the more I kind of fell in love with the theory of addicts. So my, you know, probably had I not been working with at-risk youth, uh, I probably would never stumble across that. I mean, unless I went into a coffee shop like you and picked up a book. Yeah. Yeah, it's super, uh, it is always shocking for me to understand how much someone could have impact on the world and be a ghost, right? In many ways, just be a ghost that's kind of running under the radar. And and so for for people that are hopefully curious about this, saying, hey, here's this guy who's this master of psychology that has really contributed so much to uh, the field of psychology, but also just some of, again, our common, common knowledge, like you said, this inferiority complex that I think people know quite a bit about. Um, what What is the, like, how would you describe him? I think people have an understanding of Freud, you know, understanding of Freud is he's the sex guy, right? Everything is, everything has some sexual undertone. Jung is, uh, you know, again, when I think of Jung, I think of archetypes. Talks a lot about the concept of archetype and the hero's journey and a lot of things like that. How would you describe Adler in, in summation? Um, you know, it's often when I talk to people about this, I try to divide Adler into two, or Adlerian theory, which is also called individual psychology. I try to divide it into kind of two categories. And it's not really that way, but for me to describe it and get people to understand, I divide it into two categories. One is the pathology approach, dealing with mental illness, a variety of illnesses that people have. Individual psychology is also about a way of life. And this is why, you know, many of the social work teachings come from Adler. And I mentioned earlier positive psychology because basically it takes a person's life and breaks it down and tells, tells us how we should live. And I'm sure you probably picked that up from, from the book that you read. It's a way of living. It's, it's how we should interact with our fellow man. It's how we should move toward happiness. So different than Jung or different than Freud, which focus primarily on just a pathological approach, individual psychology helps you figure out a way of living, gives you a life purpose or helps you identify your purpose. And personally, I think it, it leads us to on the road to happiness because ultimately, and I may be getting a little bit ahead of myself, but Ultimately, uh, social interest, this thing that we're kind of born with, working with others, doing for others is the way to go to, you know, to travel down the road toward happiness. So if I had to call him one word, let's just call him uh, a positive approach to living one's life, I think is how I will conceptualize everything about it. It sounds, it sounds like we're touching on the, I mean, I know Jung had some spiritual context as well. Some people said he was pretty deep into the, into spirituality. It sounds like Adler also touches on philosophy and spirituality slash almost like religious ideology on some level. On some level, I mean, when he developed his theory, he did study, you know, a variety of things. He studied the Bible was one that he used to kind of develop his approach. I wouldn't call uh, individual psychology you know, by no means a religion or, or a spiritual experience, but he helps us understand our position in this world. 
you know, we're all humans. So it's a way that humans should interact with other humans. It's a way we should interact with our world. And he clarifies all of that for us. So we could see it's, um, I guess some people would, would refer to it as a spiritual experience. I wouldn't. I think of it more as just uh, a rule and a guide of life. So in some respects, the Bible is considered to be a rule and guide of faith. But I, I look at individual psychology as a guide to our life. So I'd be curious if, if you wanted to sell someone on this, like when I see a movie I love or I hear music I love, I immediately, like, I got to find the hook so I could get other people interested. What are the hooks? What are the things or what are some of like the core concepts that you would share with someone? If you see someone you love and you're like, they're not happy, they're not understanding how to relate to the world around them. Hey, here's some ideas you might be interested in, in hopes that maybe they'd go, wow, this Adler guy does have some stuff to say and I want to go deeper into his work. Like, Where would you start people in that? I, I probably would start with, you know, some examples, um, some real life examples. For instance, I'd ask somebody to relate to think about maybe Christmas. At times of Christmas, people give gifts, people receive gifts. But imagine for a minute that you have someone that you care about deeply. Let's just say one of your children and you purchase a gift for them, thoughtful gift. You didn't ask, you didn't ask them for a list or anything. Just knowing your child, you purchase the gift for them. And when they open the gift, it's exactly what they wanted. The joy you see on that person's face, the exuberance, the enthusiasm. I mean, when they just get hyper, it puts a smile on your face. You didn't receive anything. You gave something. And by giving that thing, you get a great deal of joy back. It made you happy. You gave a gift to make somebody else happy, but instead it made you happy. It's something about giving and doing for others that complete us because that's who we are. We are a race of people that service one another. So I would use that example to explain social interests. What are the fundamental parts of individual psychology? It's about doing for others because that's where happiness comes from. We can take and take and take, but sometimes you can keep taking and, and you still find yourself unfulfilled. You're not happy. You've, you've got all the money in the world, you've got all the so-called friends in the world, but you still find out that, that you're not happy. The road to happiness is in us doing for others. So I would use that example to spark the interest, and depending on the interest, then I would go into some of the other some of the other uh, feelings. I would describe inferiority feeling. I mean, because this feeling about inferiority, Adler will tell us that we're all moving from a feeling of inferiority to a feeling of superiority or more than. And if I could elaborate a little bit on that, I would say it's kind of like a, when, a, when a baby is born, uh, the child sees us standing. So eventually that child in the crib starts pulling on the edges of the crib until they can stand up and they feel fulfilled about that because now that feeling of inferiority that they're born with, feeling less than the other humans around them that's standing and talking to them, once they stand up, you get that feeling of fulfilled. You're moving from a feeling of inferiority to a feeling of superiority, if you will, or 
not above anyone else, but better than you were. And this, this drive goes throughout life. Everyone has this feeling, some of us more than others. The key is cultivating um, this feeling within you so that as you move to a, a place of more than or more superiority, you're doing it in a functional way, not at the expense of others. Is that is that where the complex comes in? Is that when someone says it's an inferiority complex, you're saying, I want to feel more than, but at the expense of others? Exactly. Exactly. Because, and these things are held together. See, we believe that you are born with a social feeling, okay? A little bit different than social interest. That social feeling is the innate thing that you are born with. The social feeling must be cultivated by people like you and I. When we have children, they have the social feeling inside, but we cultivate it to the point that they understand how they should interact. You have you have a, a small child, you teach them to share their toys. When someone comes by, you don't want the kid to be taking all the toys, so they've got friends, but they can't play with anything. These are all mine. Yes, they are yours, but you start teaching them to share. And the joy that comes from another person using the toy, both people are happy now. You know, so we, we, we start working on cultivating that. And if it's not cultivated or if it's cultivated in a dysfunctional way, you're right. That leads to this inferiority complex. What's the other side of social interest? So in the same way, like it makes sense to me that we all start less than and we have a long way to go to become enough or feeling, I, I guess the other side would be the superiority, right? On some level uh, using that word. Um, but on that path, it makes sense. I, I have inferiority. I want to get better. And if I do it at the expense of others, that becomes the shadow version of that, the complex of that. What's the complex of social interest? Well, the, the, that's where it becomes dysfunctional. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example. And this is anecdotally. I haven't done research studies on this. But, um, you know, throughout America, we have a rash of mass shootings that we can't seem to get our arms around. When you are connected in a family, when you feel like you're, 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 you, you, you feel that, hum that connection of humanity with others, we don't do adverse actions to other people. But we feel disconnected. It's easier to do something terrible to someone that you're not connected to. So when we talk about the adverse part of that social feeling, it's that disconnection, that isolation that leads to some type of dysfunction. And that dysfunction could come out many ways. Sometimes it's, it's, it's a fight, it's an argument. Uh, you know, we, I could see it in a, in a husband and wife situation, but on the extreme ends, we see it when people go out and do these mass acts of terror, they don't feel that connection to others. They, they don't feel, it's, it's the adverse of, the social interest and the connection that we have that makes sense. It does. And I, I think the place I get hung up is when you talk about social feeling, I'm wondering, is it actually like a somatic experience in the body that Adler's talking about? Or is it something else that he's saying when he refers to it as a feeling? Well, and again, we have two things. We have that social feeling, which is like the innate thing that we're born with, that we have our birthright. We have that social feeling because we are all part of the same family of humanity. Social, the social interests 
is the part that we as parents must cultivate in our children. We cultivate that to make sure they realize that they're a part of something. We start that if you have children at home, generally speaking, you would want them to understand that they're part of, let's call it the team. You're part of a family. You have things to do as a father. Your wife has things to do as a mother. The children should have things to do to be part of that team. That could be making your bed, taking out the trash, you know, a, a variety of things to feel like they are actually a part of that feeling, a, a part of that team. So the that's the beginning of cultivating the thing that's already in there. That's that innate thing that we have that that we recognize we're part of humanity. You're cultivating that into social interests where now on their own, the people understand that they, um, the children understand that they should be connected to one another. So I guess the, 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 the place I go to, and again, I, I may sound thick on this one because if anything, I've been very disconnected from the head to the body most of my life. So a lot of it, when I hear the concept of feeling and you talk about, there's almost, if someone truly felt connected to people, the world, whatever that is, generally they're not going to do harmful acts, right? Because it's, I mean, this goes back to like non-duality, sorry non-dualism, non-duality of like inside, outside, all the same thing. There's no me and other. It's just all, we're all one and the same, right? It's, it's so, so there's something to that. I'm curious though, is when, when, how would you describe it? If I said to you, I want to feel that social feeling, is it actually a sense in the body? Is it actually an emotion? Is it what it, when I feel connected to someone, there is sometimes a sensation that I feel in my body, but is there actually a physical component to the concept of social feeling in your mind? It isn't, social feeling is a descriptive word that we use to describe an intangible, like uh, like love. You know, uh, we can't touch it, we can't see it, but we observe it in, in your actions. When you care for someone, do certain things. You may do something for a wife or a girlfriend, and they may conclude from that, you love her. Or you'll say, he loves me, based on the things that you are doing. So social feeling or social interest is an intangible thing. It's not, it's just like those emotions of, of love. And you can, you, you, you know, it's based on how a person acts. So it's not like you um, get a particular feeling that reverberates throughout your entire body. It's I'm, I'm relieved to hear this. that. I'm relieved to hear that because I'm like, man, I think I didn't want to say it until you answered that because I'm like, I think I was born without the social feeling. I well, can't I'll feel it you, in my body. I'll, let me let me interject something and I'll, I'll tell you how I would kind of evaluate it. Um, to people, I would ask them, are you happy? Are you happy with your life? And when people tell me that they are, then, you know, hey, everything is Gucci. That's fine. We got no problem. If you're not happy, then we we probably should talk about that. And the first thing I would look for is is how are you interacting with others? What are you doing for others? Because this puts you on the road to happiness. Generally speaking, when a person doesn't have that that feeling of social interest, I would say that they're generally lacking in the things that they're doing for other people. Because we have become self-centered and, and the whole world is about doing things for me. Doing things for me is not going to take you to happiness. It 
will get you through life, but you are always going to feel a vacancy there because that's not how we're created. Nowhere in society do we find man isolated. We've, we've always been a part of a community, that community of humanity. And that community of humanity is what fulfills us, doing for others. I mean, it's a word that we could use that's pretty universal, that whether people hate you because of your ethnicity, your complexion, your financial status, or whatever, it's a word that we use that seems to unify, unify people, and that's help. When we say help, other humans come whether they like you or not. It's like it's something in us that fulfills us to go help people. We have organizations we call charity that people just give to. You know, I have I, I have a humorous expression I have given to people sometime, and I say that, you know, um, poverty is God's extra key that he gives to wealthy people so they can get to heaven. So you can do something for other people. And it's just a humorous, you know, little anecdote that I use. But the fact of the matter is, it's something to that. It's something to the fact that we get such great pleasure for doing for others. So when 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 people aren't happy, and I have met a number of them in my life, generally speaking, I start evaluating them and I look what they do with their lives. And most time I find that they're self-centered without really even realizing that they are. Sometimes we strive so hard to achieve and accomplish things, but those things are all about us. You know, a successful business is when a CEO can find a way to put everybody in positions so that they can feel successful. So you do something for them to make them feel successful. You know, when these people see that you're doing things, you're giving to them. That makes you happy, but it also makes them happy. Who is it happy? For instance, if you have a mentor or a mentee and you train this person and you teach this person and all of a sudden this person achieves a great level of success, wouldn't that make you happy? Yeah. It's all about what you have done for someone else. So instead of us looking inward about, about it being all about us, the success is going to come when we start doing for others. This is why we'll find in an athletic endeavor, sports teams, and we'll see on paper, this particular team should win, but they don't win. Why? Because they're not, they're not together. They're not working together as a team. Sometimes I give up points so I can make you successful. Instead of me taking that shot, I might pass it to you for you to take the shot. But if I'm selfish, I'm trying to get all the points I can. And, and maybe I will get those points, but the team will lose. It's about sharing, giving to others. That's that's where our success in life comes from, and I believe that's where our happiness comes So I guess I'd be curious to now build on that. Knowing that you work with at-risk youth, I imagine that social interest may come into the dialogue with them. And I I'd, I would love to hear from you, how do you apply this, right? So someone says, great, I'm sold. This is super interesting. This Adler guy's clearly got some ideas that are really beautiful and bring, again, to me, it is the application of timeless spiritual principles into practical knowledge for living. That's really the way I would describe it, given what you just said. Um, so given that, I'm wondering, can you give some real examples of people you've worked with or kids you've worked with, the kind of results you got and how you steered them using some of these tools? 
of, well, of, of, of course, athletically, you know, it's, it's easy to do. I've coached basketball, football, track, um, you know, for a number of years. I don't right now, but I've did that for a number of years. And it's easier in those kind of environments because I can show them how by trying to make someone else successful, it makes us successful by inspiring them to pass the ball. And, I, and of course, initially you have to enforce that. But I, if, if one person doesn't make the shot, it's one second left in the game, and you pass it to someone else and they make the shot, the whole team is happy. It doesn't matter whether you did it or not. So I would emphasize those facts when I'm dealing, you know, athletically. When I'm dealing with youth, and it has nothing to do with athletics, so if I'm not coaching them, it's a little bit different approach. And I don't normally isolate social interests just by itself. Um, social interest is kind of tied. It's like the glue that holds together the task that you must accomplish in life. And we haven't talked about that a little bit, at least at this point, but it's three particular tasks that you have to accomplish. So, um, and if you want, I can elaborate on those right now and yeah, tell you how it. all of that I, tasks I, I, I'd be curious to know what the three tasks are. So the, these three tasks are, uh, according to individual psychology, everyone has a, we would call it the work task. And that means that we all must provide, must work so we all can provide to society. For instance, you're sitting in a, uh, in a beautiful studio there with your guitars on the wall, um, but you probably are an expert musician, but I would venture to say you didn't make any other guitars. Someone else made those and they provided it to you and then you could do your thing. So it's a work task where we all contribute to one another and we all benefit from one another. Secondly, it's the task of us being able to get along with other humans. We're part of humanity. I mean, we have to learn to get along. Uh, you know, you have animals, you have insects, you have a lot of other things in the world, but in the animal kingdom, nobody is accepting humans to be a part of that. Lions don't want us joining their crew. We're the weakest thing on this planet. We can't, I mean, we can't survive outside by ourselves. We can't just find our food. We, I mean, we're, we're just weak. We survive and we thrive because we work together. So it's imperative that we learn to work together with other humans because our very existence depends on that. And lastly, it speaks more to procreation. Uh, many animals go extinct. That's not something we're going to ever have to worry about with humanity for a variety of reasons. But because of that, and to pre procreate, we have an opposite sex. We must learn how to get along with the opposite sex or the fact of procreation. Now, granted, everybody does not um, have children, and that's a choice that they make, but everybody couldn't make that choice. We have to procreate because this is how humanity continues. So those three tasks, Anna believes, everybody must traverse those tasks. Those tasks are held together by social interests. So I give this same kind of explanation to youth that I deal with, but I specifically focus on getting along with one another. And, and getting along with one another is kind of held together by doing for one another because it's a task that we must accomplish. So how do you get that task done? You do that by working together. So you know, I would have different um, 
task in a classroom or in, a, in, the, in the streets, if we happen to be out there, where two or more people are working together on the same task. And as they accomplish these things, they get the feeling of working together. You can get more done when, when you're working together. You know, all ships should rise when the tide comes in. So I emphasize that part through a variety of little tasks that we, we, uh, we utilize and we do in classes. And that's primarily how I would do that. But I usually don't separate it without kind of tying in everything in together, you know, realizing also that, um, you know, if I could a little bit, I just feel like at this point, I'd like to talk a little bit about inferiority, if you, if you don't mind, and how that ties together. And I'll tell you, this, this kind of brings up an example about my, you know, I have a brother, and my brother, as youth, he was um, not a very good athlete. I was a I was a much better athlete, but I didn't have to work at it. And I was just, you know, I don't know. I was just good at some things. So we were on a football team, and uh, my brother didn't make the team. So my mother made me quit because, you know, my mom was on about academics, and it's just a game. If Killeth can't make the team, nobody is going to play. You know, even though the coaches came by, look, we need Hal in it. No, no, if Killeth can't make it, nobody plays. So... My brother had this intense desire. He felt terrible about that. He felt, you know, he was less than I. I could do everything better than him. Long story short, years later, uh, my brother ends up making a team, uh, getting a scholarship to go to Syracuse University. Um, because of by his senior year, he had become very dominant. So he gets to Syracuse. And at Syracuse, initially, same kind of thing. In the beginning, he was not that much of an athlete. He felt inferior, which was driving him. By his senior year, he was one of the top linemen at Syracuse. Now comes the draft. Um, but he didn't get drafted. Um, he did get an offer to walk on at with the Eagles. Again, same situation when he gets there. Everything he owns is in the trunk of his car. He has nothing. Um, they didn't draft it, and at the beginning of camp, he's just getting beat down until it's almost this feeling of inferiority just develops in him so much until it breaks down to he's about crying. But the feeling of inferiority was so strong in him that it that it inspired him. It pushed him so much more. Long story short, he ends up uh, making the team, playing in the NFL for 14 years starting wow. for 11, and he was always driven, but he was always driven by being less than everyone, or feeling less than. Even when he was successful, he felt less than, because it's not about reality, it's about what a person feels. So realizing those experiences and what could happen with that, with that feeling of inferiority, I use those examples when I, when I deal with you to channel it in a more positive way in a more positive manner. We go through life with this feeling of inferiority. We go to, if you're taking a Spanish class, for instance, you don't know Spanish initially, but so you feel inferior. But the functional way, the more pro-social way of dealing with that is let that inspire you to work harder. Let that inspire you to focus versus being dysfunctional and it inspires you to find a way to cheat to do Good. it in a dysfunctional way. So it's all about 
It's not about eliminating these feelings because the human experience is about these feelings of inferiority. Every day you go to work, Nick, it's something different that happens that you might not have planned for. You have to figure that out. So it's two choices. You can approach it in a pro-social functional way, or you can find something unethical to do to, to accomplish that. That becomes the development of a pathology. It's about taking this feeling, first understanding it, and taking it and focusing it. And if, and if a person is a leader, you recognize this and you look at the people that work for you. You identify those feelings and you help them focus it in a functional way. You have to have the courage to be imperfect. It's not going to always work just right, but you have to be strong. You have to have the courage to that. And if it don't work right this time, it will the next time. And if not the next time, it will the next You So you keep that in a pro-social way, a functional way. We don't go outside those barriers because when we do, of course, that's when it starts leading to a variety of dysfunctions. You know, where we may steal or we may lie. We may, you know, all these other things. So these are the things that I try to do with the, with the kids, with the youth that I, that I work with. And I work with adults also, but particularly with the youth because it's easier. They're at a stage when they're developing these things already. So it's easier for me to focus them than it is with an adult, although the same thing happens with an adult. I mean, I can very much hear, as you're talking, I mean, there's so much curiosity that comes up around the idea that one, inferiority, I've only known inferiority complex. I've never known just inferiority, right? And that's important in my mind of, it's almost like we shame the feeling of inferiority. Oh, I feel that that's bad. And so if I can't be with my own feeling of inferiority, then I can't, I won't want to put myself in a situation that will challenge me to become my better self, my better version. And I, I immediately go to like this idea of these, like, uh, everyone gets a trophy in school, right? It's this idea of we don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable, we don't want anyone to feel less than. And I'm curious in that perspective is, you know, would the, would the teachings of Adler say we're actually uh, taking away the opportunity for people to feel the adversity of inferiority so that they can have a motivation to move forward? If he, he would. I think Adler would speak of it more about courage. In courage is derived from courage. So you, we encourage people to get better. And that person has to have the courage to deal with our inadequacies. The mere human experience is that we wake up one day, we find ourselves on this planet Earth, and we go through life trying to figure out ways to deal with the adversities that come up. Those things take courage. So when, as you talk about the, the trophies and everybody getting a trophy at school, I'm not, I don't subscribe to that. What I do subscribe to is the people that did not win, you, you learn to deal with those adversities. You have the courage to deal with your adversities. That feeling that you have, you'll hear sometimes great athletes say, hold on to that feeling. Let that feeling drive you to become better. The great, the super great athletes all will say they might have lost the game, but I sat there and I watched the celebration on the court. I wanted to hold on to that feeling. And I used that feeling throughout the off season. And it, and it drove me to do something to make myself better, to make the team better. It's not about me just getting all the praise. It's about making everybody better. So when a, if, if we try to shape the world with a child, 
to think that everything goes your way. That's giving them the wrong worldview because now you end up with an adult that has expectations that everything goes your way. We know that that's, that's just not reality. So what ends up happening, we could be cultivating this development of a complex within this person. And they start solving their problems through dysfunctional ways because you believe the whole, everything is, you believe you're supposed to have all the money, then maybe you'll rob somebody or you'll steal or you'll do some other things because you think it always should be that way. Our job as these young people are developing their view of the world is to help them with that development. You know, we encourage them. You know, we want them to develop the courage. I mean, you and I have to have courage to deal with many things if it's something we haven't done before, even if it's learning how to play golf. I mean, the first day you go out and play golf, you're not going to be very good at it. But you have to have the courage to go out there, even though people may be looking at you saying, look at Nick, he can't even hit the ball. It may be people laugh. You have to have the courage to deal with that. This is, this is life. This is the way we have to go through life. But we must remember to stay within boundaries, the acceptable boundaries of society. Because all problems are really social problems. They're problems because society deemed them to be problems. So, uh, I, no, I don't subscribe to the everybody gets a trophy philosophy. And for those that decide to do that, that's fine. But from my vantage point, I think what we want to do is use all of those as life's teaching moments and explanation because there's going to be other things that come up also. So you have to learn how to deal with adversity and how to accept certain things. And if you want to be better, then you move on to become better. Uh, again, very, it's very interesting. I'm curious how, uh, how did Adler set the stage for positive psychology? And you said something else, positive motivation, which I didn't know exactly what that was. Well, and that, yeah, and that's, that's, that's exemplified in the word that I just used. Adler talks a lot about courage. But what we should do is encourage people because sometimes when these adversities come up, it can increase that feeling of inferiority so much that this person can't deal with it. Because what we're trying to do is keep everybody to handle their life's task in a functional way, in an acceptable way. So it's about encouragement. You know, you, you, you continue to encourage people. Uh, that's part of either actually a therapeutic approach with clients. You want to encourage them to continue to do something and not give up because, because you're going to have life's adversities. So this is why Adler's looked upon as, or Adlerian psychologists looked upon as positive psychology because of the encouragement that we believe that you give to people to keep them motivated, to keep them headed in the right direction. In a, in a family situation, you could have a son who's running track, for instance, maybe he ran cross country, and he came in fourth place, and he says he wants to quit. I think most fathers and mothers would say, no, you shouldn't quit. You can be better. It's about being the best that you can be. As long as you're the best that you can be, it doesn't have to be number one or number two or number three. It's about being the, the best version of yourself. And again, this is all about life, going through life trying to be the best version of yourself. I really like that as a, I've never thought about the concept of encouragement as lending someone your courage until they have enough of their own. That's a really, really beautiful idea. Uh, I've never thought about the etymology at all. So it's kind of a, 
it's a total reframe for me of like, that's really beautiful. It's us having the courage to face the challenges of our life, of our life's work or life's task. Uh, and in those moments that we don't have it, having people around us that hopefully have that social feeling and social interest to lend it to us. And I start to see how the framework of Adlerian like starts to come together. I can, I can start to understand. It's, a, it's very interesting to me. Um, and I, I hope it's interesting to people that are listening. I'd be curious to know what, at this point, as we're starting to land the plane here, if someone's got their, you know, their, their, their ears tweaked, they're like, all right, I'm curious. I want to know more about this. How would you recommend someone go down the road of, of learning more about Adler or finding ways to bring some of these, some understanding of these principles to their own life? Um, as you mentioned earlier, um, Adler wasn't a prolific writer. He did write many books, but most people wrote about him. And you and I got together because of a book that you read, The Courage to Be Disliked. And the, the book that you read, which was written, you, you almost wouldn't know it had anything to do with Adlerian psychology or individual psychology. The way it was written, it was like a story that it was, um, you know, went through a whole life experience, but it talked about many different Adlerian theories there. It didn't go deep into it, but it was just enough to spark your interest. Um, that's, a, that's a good book that I would recommend, Courage to be Disliked. Um, it's also an expression that I use with people. I do a lot of recruiting and organization. I'm also the president-elect of the North American Society of Adlerian Psychology. So I do a, a great deal of time. I'm, I'm traveling um, and I teach a lot internationally in addition to states. And um, I always say to be one, you ask one. You know, you sit down and you talk to an Adlerian and where you can get a deeper understanding. It's pretty difficult, difficult to conceptualize the entire philosophy in an hour's time. But by talking with someone, there's so many other uh, parts of Adlerian psychology, lifestyle. And it's interesting. If, I don't know if you have any siblings, Nick, but if you do, three of them, I would wager you that your siblings that you knew when you were a little kid, as you look at them now, you would say, you know what? They have not changed much since they were a kid. Yes, they do another thing, but they're still, they're still the same. Why? Because at an early age, we develop this worldview. We, we develop what we call a lifestyle, the way we see the world. It's like I am a certain way, uh, people are a certain way the world is. You start developing these things and you maintain that because it, it's comfortable for you not to change. And this is how sometimes people develop biases that they have that they don't even realize because many things are developed early and they just don't change unless someone changes you. Also, this leads down the road of pathologies because many times anxiety, for instance, is maybe a safeguard, a way that you have learned to protect yourself against certain situations. So if a person, every time a person is going to do something new, they may get this anxious feeling because something they learned early in life going into new situations could be bad for them. So they have developed this thing that becomes part of their being. This is not a conscious thing. And they start having anxiety when they're doing new things. So when, you know, 
So what an ad lyric does is I never tell anybody what to do. I sit with you and we and I help you uncover those things. And once they're uncovered, you will find a solution yourself because these things that we're doing, we don't even realize it until you talk to somebody. The best way to uh, understand Adlerian psychology would be to talk to an Adlerian, but you could also go to some of the other Adlerian sites like uh, www.alfredadler.org is one way. This leads you to the North American Society of Adlerian Psychology, or you could just type in NASAP, North American Society of Adlerian Psychology. It will open up a web page and there's a variety of resources there. I could also leave you at the end of the presentation with a, my email. You know, people can certainly reach out to me, and I don't, and I don't, I certainly don't mind answering questions or for as long as it takes. And occasionally, I do presentations on uh, individual psychology, beginning Adler, a variety of things, which was, which is kind of like a teaspoon worth of Adler to keep sparking that interest. Excellent. Well, what we'll do is I'll put all that stuff in the show notes so people have all the links. Uh, we'll put your, your email and everything. We, we appreciate you offering that out to our listeners. Um, and I'm curious with the last question, uh, what is your dream beyond? That's a very good question, Nick. Uh, I was in um, Ireland a couple of months ago. As I said, I teach in a variety of countries. And I did a plenary there. And the plenary was about us saving the world. And prior to me doing the plenary, many people came to me and said, oh, so you're going to save the world? He said, well, let's, let's, I can't wait to hear your presentation. But um, that's really deep in my heart. I think that if we have problems with society, we are society. You know, as we look at children, our, our, our method of solving problems with children is to incarcerate them. We've been doing that for hundreds and hundreds of years. That's not solving the problem. Incarceration is not solving. We can't keep blaming the kids. We are in charge of society. So if things are going wrong, it's, it's up to us. We can change society. We can make it better. We may be familiar with the butterfly effect. Um, you know, a, you know something that happens, you know, I guess a good example was Canada had some fires a while back. Um, and there was sitting smoke everywhere. I live in St. Paul, Minnesota, quite a ways away from Canada. Yet some days we would get warnings not to go outside if you didn't need to. Sporting events were canceled. Why? Because something that happened in Canada was affecting me in St. Paul, Minnesota. We can make a difference. We can make a difference. One guy, Martin Luther King, used Adlerian psychology you know, he spoke about this in a, in a great speech he gave, the drum major effect. And he talked about his teachings that he got from Adler taught him how we should get along with each other. And one person, Martin Luther King, created a giant civil rights movement that changed the country. Another Adlerian, Dr. Kenneth Clark, and his famous doll experiments, he petitioned the Supreme Court, with the teachings that he said he learned from Adler, and this created legislation that, uh, during the Brown versus Board of Education, that outlawed segregation in schools. 
Dr. Kenneth Clark says, if it's anything that I know, and I'm paraphrasing him, all of the things that I know that I was able to present to him, I learned from Alfred Adler. The teachings of Adler, when mixed with the skills of particular individuals like yourself, can make a difference. So my dream is that we all do our part to make this world a better place for everybody. Might sound, you know, magnanimous, but that's that's my dream. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful share. And I, though I wanted to wrap it up, I do want to touch on something that you told me once before, and and I think it's worth noting is if we could just close it on the fact, you know, you talked about MLK and you talked about the other individual, I forgot his name. Was it Clark? Kenneth, Kenneth Clark. Kenneth Clark, right? They, these are people that have had extraordinary impact on the world and our country specifically. And what I find interesting is that Adler, you used a term about, he was one of the early, it was a term you used around how like he just cared for community, cared for society, cared for social causes. I think that that's also something I find so interesting. So if you could just touch on that real quick, when you mentioned it one time before, I, I missed it. Um, I'm not sure which term I use, but I will say that what, what Adler did uh, as he developed his theory is he went and lived among circus people. He went into the poor areas of town because Adler was an was the uh, advocate and an activist. And he developed this because he looked at the disparities and the inequities in society, realizing that these inequities the antithesis of humanity. We're supposed to work together because this is how we survive. And when we're not, we're destroying society. We're making it bad for everybody. So Adler lived among people. So I'm not sure exactly which term I used at the time. Um, as you as you could probably tell, I can I could go on and on for hours just talking, but it was about, you know, him just understanding how we work together as a team. So he and he developed this from living not in the in the exclusive big mansion White House someplace, but it was living almost. And I, listen, I certainly don't want to um, compare Adler to Jesus, but it's almost like he lived among poor or everyday people to develop this his his theories. And and you know I think that's what makes him able to relate to everyone because on a base level, I mean we're all really the same. Yeah, so you you totally hit the point on the head. I don't remember the word, but I think even just touching on the fact that really he was uh he was an advocate and he was into activism. There's something really important in that because again, there's a lot of concepts of I just recently heard about Freud that he had a lot of ideas, but when you really looked at Freud's record, I think someone told me recently he had only worked with under a hundred people. Yeah, that he actually worked with like a very, very small set and it was mostly Austrian wives, like housewives. And, and- and they tended to be people from the wealthier. That's right. So like we have this very, very, very tiny, tiny data set that was used to be applied to everyone. Where here you have a guy like Adler who's going to every aspect of life and, and interacting with people from all walks of life. And there's just something to that. A guy saying like, look, yeah, I'm not going to isolate this just to my little bubble and my little circle. I'm really going to look at the fundamental principles of society, humanity, who we are as people. And to that, I think, you know, just some of the biggest takeaways for me today is um, just the power of embracing that feeling of inferiority, right? Like that is such a such an unlock for me because, again, I always thought if I feel inferi- inferior, I thought it was a complex just because I feel inferior. I didn't know that it was only a complex if I knock people down because of it. 
That is huge unlock for me. That second piece of understanding the power of encouragement, right? Using using that desire to be part of that, you know, the the social contract, the social feeling. Uh, th- th- there's something really beautiful again about this idea of lending your courage to others so that they can cultivate their own, so that they can become who they're supposed to be. Like it's to your point of like uh, most parents I've talked to about their kids. They said I knew who my kid was going to be when they were three. It was just a matter of just watching them figure it out as they went. And I just think that's a beautiful idea if we could all just lend that encouragement, lend that courage to other people. And the last thing I'd say is if you are someone who wants to make a difference in the world, uh, what Hallie said about, you know, Illyrian psychology, the Illyrian principles, becoming an Illyrian yourself may be the tools, may give you the tools you need to really have an impact in the world. So you're not just sitting on the sidelines, you're on the court playing in a big way. And Man, I love this. I love this conversation. I love these topics, and I uh, I hope everyone is just as inspired by all the stuff you just heard. Uh, in the meantime, again, you could check out the websites alfredadler.org. Uh, we'll put a bunch of other stuff in the show notes. Check out the book, The Courage to Be Disliked. If you're interested in either working with Hallie or just reaching out to him for questions, we'll put his email in the show notes. And again, Hallie, thank you so much for uh, sharing your heart and doing so much meaningful stuff in the world. Uh, the pleasure has been entirely mine, Nick. I appreciate you. And what one last comment that I'll make is that after listening to your closing statements, I think you're almost ready to start teaching individual psychology yourself. All right. Beautiful. I'm ready to graduate. Let's get it done. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Cool. Thank you again, Hallie. I hope you all enjoyed the show. Thank you for listening to The Dream Beyond. I hope that you received whatever message or inspiration you were meant to get from today's episode. I had a great time recording it for you. If you love the show, please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review it. That really helps get the word out. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Instagram.com slash Nick Tarasio, LinkedIn.com slash in slash Nick Tarasio, or YouTube.com slash N Tarasio.